0: You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Over the last four months, the world economy has taken a hit due to a pandemic which has literally brought the wheels of economy to a standstill. Needless to say, the watch industry, too, incurred huge losses as COVID-19 directly impacted both manufacturing and sales, much like it did to most sectors and industries. World-renowned exhibitions such as Baselworld, Watches and Wonders, which will bring leading watch manufacturers from around the world on one platform where they showcase latest designs, had to be canceled or rescheduled to a future date. While retail sales have been nothing short of a nightmare, the watch industry is finding newer ways to connect with the target audience, newer platforms that will give the industry what it requires to look beyond COVID 19. Many brands are already engaging their audience and potential customer base on various online and social media platforms, which has to some extent helped them gain lost ground while building a new channel to reach out to customers. One of those digital avenues to sell is online auctions. Auction houses have been forced online to meet the demand of sellers, buyers, and collectors. While the level of drama and excitement isn't nearly the same as a live auction, the results so far have been quite impressive. And the new format is drawing a different audience, many of them under 40 years old. Some people still balk at buying a pair of designer loafers online and relish the tactility of trying an outfit on in person. But a $1.3 million Cartier jewel encrusted bracelet or a $700,000 rare 18 karat gold Rolex watch all unseen? No problem. The COVID crisis has created many a new world, and buying blind is one of them. For those with deep pockets, the money is still there, and with buyers itching to spend, the industry has adapted fast. My special guest today on the Luxury Item Podcast is an expert in the watch world and can talk about the shifts and trends that have surfaced in the industry. Rebecca Ross is a watch specialist at the world's top auction house, Christie's, where she joined in 2014. After achieving a master's degree from Christie's education, specializing in history of art and the art market, Rebecca Ross's appreciation of art expanded to include timepieces, having been exposed to the artistry of clocks and watches from an early age through her father's collection. She travels the worldwide to find the rarest timepieces to add to various Christie's auctions throughout the year, and in addition manages client wish lists on a private sale basis. Rebecca holds a degree in classical civilization from the University of Leeds in the UK and was awarded a certification from the Foundation de Haute Orlogerie in fine watchmaking in April 2015. Welcome, Rebecca.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's um, I'm catching you at a good time because I think you had just, I think Christy's just finished the uh, summer auction season, from what I understand.
1: Yeah, we had a wonderful uh, summer auction season. It did just finish, so this is a great time to to be on and talk to you about it. Um, We had, in the month of July alone, 23 dedicated luxury auctions, which um, span jewelry, watches, wine, and handbags um it's pretty incredible uh what we've seen um as an increased value threshold for transacting online as you can imagine right um i'll just just give you a a, a little example from the jewelry department because oh, it's incredibly impressive um they sold a 28.86 carat emerald cut diamond for 2.1 million online
0: wow yeah, is that so- a, is that a, is that a record
1: Um, I don't know if it's a record for them, but it's certainly incredible to see how, you know, sight unseen, um, these luxury items are still reaching such a high threshold.
0: Yeah, I was just actually talking about that. And, you know, in in the opening, how it's incredible how um, consumers, you know, you think about 10 years ago, they would never buy something like that, wouldn't even consider to buy something like that sight unseen. And now it's part of the norm. They have the money and they want to do it
1: yeah and uh you know luxury week in geneva um had registered bidders from 42 countries across six continents um and in hong kong specifically specifically for watches uh we we following our record breaking sale of the patek philippe uh, 2523 last autumn um this season we were thrilled to achieve an auction record again for a patek philippe Um, in the 5033 and 2524 slash one. I don't know how in-depth your listeners are (laughs) to reference numbers, but um, some might be. (laughs) And so, yeah, exceptional results, uh, really strong global participation. um, And it's really a testament to our continued leadership and just offering the finest timepieces.
0: I know we're going to talk about watches and timepieces uh, with Christie's, but the one thing that one of the things that caught my eye was um, that Christie's was auctioning off 11 pairs of Nike Air Jordans actually worn by Michael Jordan during his time with the Bulls and also signed as well. Did that happen already or is that is that coming up?
1: It's happening at the moment, actually. Um, it ends on August 13th, so that's next week. Um, it is a new collect- collecting category within our landmark sales. Um, we called it Original Air and it represents the greatest collection of historic Michael Jordan footwear ever auctioned um, at one time. So yeah, it's really exciting and I can't wait to see the results.
0: What are they saying it's going to go for?
1: It's still to be determined. I think we'll have to see how it goes. There's definitely a lot of strong interest and it's nice because this new collecting category is um, bringing collectors that perhaps haven't transacted with Christie's before, you know, it's a whole new category for us and for them.
0: Right. That's a great idea. It uh, obviously will bring in a a younger audience Mm. um, who perhaps don't have experience with auctions.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So I know bidding also just closed on the watches online, the collector's edition. Um, How did that perform? And what were some of the top sales? And what does that focus on?
1: Yeah, we um, just finished our Watches Online online sale for July and we actually have maybe five or six throughout the year. Um, it performed very well, as to be expected uh, during the pandemic. We have had really good online um, sales, so we, we did anticipate a good sale. It began on July 22nd and it ran for two weeks, so it finished yesterday on August 5th. Um, it's nice that it runs for two weeks because then bidders get the chance to Really take their time, uh, look at the watches over the, the course. Um, there's a wide range available from two thousand dollars to over one hundred fifty thousand dollars, various brands and various complications. Um, and it did really well. There was forty countries participating. Um, the top lot of the online sale was uh, by F. B. Jean, and it was a platinum octa automatic. Uh, which which achieved 162 over 162,000. Um, so just to put it in perspective, there were 20 like 24 competitive bids, and the estimate was 30,000. So,
0: and there's were there a lot of unusual timepieces in that one, or yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, there was a range that well, that was really the top, uh, the highlight of the auction, but. We had um, Patek Philippe and Rolex as usual, um, Omega, Breitling, and some independent watchmakers such as Vianney Holter, and BNF. So there's a lot of variety.
0: And at the same time, you know, Christie's had their rare watch sale in Geneva, and that was the first live auction in Switzerland since the lockdown. So how did that work out and how were they, I guess they were socially distancing in the sales room, I would imagine?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, safety measures come first and um, it was definitely different. I, Geneva is the hub for our watch sales. So we're used to having a packed sale room and we actually had the, the, the watches uh, for preview before the sale so clients can come and take a look and try them on. Um, and both were socially distanced in, in the view and in the sale room. Um, and I think considerably less participants came. But, you know, the sale was still strong. And I think that just shows you that nowadays uh, collectors are buying luxury items sight unseen. And I, I think that's a testament to their trust right. in us, in us to, to, to give them what they want.
0: Yeah, I think one of the most exciting things for me, um, the first time that I've experienced an online auction, um, I think it was about a month ago, Christie's had that four venue global one sale. And if you could talk about that whole format, the idea behind it, um, it was it was like a um, it was like a Twitch for uh, upscale adults, uh, <laughs> where you're you're, uh, you're actually watching. You know, I'll, I'll let you describe mm-hmm. it, but it's uh, this relay format. Um, mm-hmm. So tell, talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, for those that don't know, the the one auction as we called it was the first of its kind. Um, it was a global 20th century art auction which spanned four cities in a relay-style format. Um, It took part on July 10th. Uh, It was a multi-part live sale, but it took part in in real time across um, Hong Kong, Paris, London, and New York. So online, the auctioneer is going from one city to the next. Um, Right, it started out
0: in Hong Kong, right?
1: Yeah, and then it moved uh, to the different cities, and all sorts of things could have gone wrong. I mean, glitches on the internet and uh, <laughs> right. who knows what else, but um, actually it, it, it did ex- exceptionally well. And it was a very innovative innovative um, idea, something completely new. And yeah. I just think it's really important um, and it's proof of concept that an investment in digital, uh, digital enhancement is really
0: the way forward. And the most interesting thing for me, which I kept me engaged, or the auctioneers,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I mean, a live auction—if you haven't been already—is um, it should be a spectacle. Um, the auctioneer is is in effect the stage man, and it's fun, and I it, it should be engaging, um, and it should be exciting, and uh, that's what I think that
0: we we strive to keep. Yeah, even the way they interacted with each other sort of made yeah. it almost like a uh, you know watching a a show.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, Um, So let's switch over to the the watch industry. You know, the the Swiss watch industry has been hit hard by COVID. And um, the recent statistics from the Federation of the Swiss watch industry show that exports dropped 62% between April and June. Do you think the worst is over for the Swiss watch industry?
1: Um, Well, in the beginning, you know, the 2020 production halt for modern Rolex and Paddock um, and others, I think will have and is having an interesting effect. Um, The manufacturing facilities had to close during the crisis and they still remain closed as do many global distribution centers and local offices with no official timelines uh, yet for reopening. And I think we're still in the thick of it. Um, I don't think we're quite over the hill yet to be able to forecast what will happen next. But especially in the auction world, there are some positive trends that we, can, that we see now that I think we
0: will continue in the future. What are some of those trends?
1: Um, well, there has already been a demand in, in vintage timepieces over modern timepieces, and I think that, that is stronger than ever. Um, I also think there is a new interest in what I call other brands, so not necessarily the top three, which are Patek, Rolex, and Audemars Piguet, um, but now there's more interest in other brands, especially F.B. Jean, which have seen a sharp uh, rise this year. Um, and also, I think just people at home, collectors are looking to diversify their collections. So they're looking at other things that perhaps they didn't look at before. And there are some positive things that come out of this as well.
0: You now, in your bio, you said that you were exposed to the world of watches and clocks at a very early age. I'd love for you to talk about that and you know what fascinated you about your father's collection that gave you that urology bug? Yeah, <laughs>
1: um, well, I, I grew up in Northwest London. Uh, my, my father was a collector and he wasn't a, a huge collector. He had, um, it wasn't a big extensive collection, but it was well varied and it concentrated on the icons of timekeeping. And in addition to watches, there were also grandfather clocks around the house and marine chronometers. And we would frequently discuss watches around the dinner table. Um, And he would show me his collection from time to time. And as the youngest of four kids, I think I had more patience (laughs) for it than the others. And, um, you know, his fascination and his excitement for the watches ultimately transferred to me. Um, but as a child, you don't really realise what will resonate with you later in life. Um, but as I got older, the fascination developed, and I feel very fortunate that I was be able to that I was able to create a career from it.
0: Yeah, that's great. And it's interesting that the watch industry has long been considered a male-dominated industry. You know, the majority of products being large-scale timepieces produced for these brawny risks and sold, <laughs> you know, and sold with the images of Formula One cars and intrepid mountaineers or deep-sea divers. But there yeah. seems to be an untold number of women working in the watch world, and many of them in top management posts. Do you see an opportunity now? What is going on with that? Do you see more opportunities for women to, um, to grow and, and get into the watch world and the watch industry?
1: Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, I, um, I am the only female in my office, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> uh, um, I never saw it as a male or female industry. I mean, I do understand that watches like cars are predominantly sort of a male interest. But for me, it was just an interest and I didn't really see the difference. And I think that's helped me um, propel myself because I didn't really take note of it and I didn't really bow to it, for want of a better word. Um, So, you know, I just sort of immersed myself in it, just like the boys did. and, Mm -hmm. And I'm still here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, that's great. And you started in 2014 at Christie's. What was that like when um, when you first started there? Obviously, it's one of the premier brands in the world. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about your experience since you started there.
1: Yeah, I think really um, the Christie's education master's degree was what began my journey. I I was a lover of art and I still am, but the master's degree in, in the history of art and the business of art with Christie's really let me reconnect with my love of watches. And I would advise anyone considering continuing education surrounding art and luxury to consider this master's degree. Um, Christie's is really a place of treasures and I, I, have, I have to thank their educational facilities for helping me further my passion. Um, so that's where it all began. And then when the degree was complete, I joined the watch department as an intern and i really never look back it's it's a dream job to be able to travel globally i mean not now but generally travel globally to hunt for the rarest timepieces and put together these auctions which i hope give collectors and spectators a show of history and a show of rarity and just simply magnificence
0: in neurology and you work with the private collectors too
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, we have auctions, we have live auctions and we have online auctions, but we also have a private sales platform where, um, and it has become very popular because if you have a watch, Scott, you'd like to sell, um, you don't necessarily have to wait until the auction, which might be a couple of months away. You know, it's more of a bespoke service and you could potentially sell it tomorrow
0: you're connecting the collector with the seller I would imagine
1: right right and how do
0: you how do you find the collector you know sort of make that match
1: oh, well we have a large um, sort of collector base and there it's a global collector base and I have my you know list of clients and I know what they want and what they need and and I try to cater to that.
0: So, you know, like all companies around the world, auction houses now found themselves in, you know, these uncharted territories when COVID hit. What was it like when Christie's, you know, had to all of a sudden close down everything and pivot to online sales? What was that? Tell our audience kind of what that experience was, what happened there.
1: Yeah, we, we closed the office um, on March 13th. And um, our specialist teams, you know, we, we remain in contact, close contact with our clients you know, every day. Um, in, in many ways, I think this period has strengthened our relationships um, because we've, we've had to work with our clients and work together to find new solutions to get consignments and how we can allow for viewings and sales. So, you know, during this period, it's been exceptional um, transitioning and a uh, huge transition to digital, as we know, but also technology has also played a large part. Um, photo quality has, has, has to rise and capabilities such as 3D viewing or video have had to be enhanced. So there's been a lot of change, but it's also been extremely positive.
0: Yeah. I mean, you were doing online sales beforehand. I was reading that uh, Christie's had, you know, seen unprecedented online engagement since the lockdown um, with year over year increased participation and the sell through rates, you know, were pretty high, you know, nearly 35% of the buyers were actually new to Christie's. Who are these new buyers? Were they younger? Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, we, since the lockdown, we've had registrants from 93 countries, I think, and um, 35% are new buyers to Christie's, which is, which is a large percentage. And um, first time online buyers, I think was up 158% year over year. So talking about from 2019 to 2020, Um, it's pretty impressive and, uh, I think it's only set to continue.
0: Are you finding in general that there are younger buyers that are more interested now in, uh, in purchasing watches?
1: Yeah, for sure. A large percentage are millennials, um, which is great because, you know, they start collecting, um, sort of entry level. And then I love to work with the collectors to figure out what their true passions are and, and help them grow their, their interests and their, their watch collection. And that's really the fun part for
0: me. So do you think now is a good time to buy a watch?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, now is a good time to really be a bit introverted. You have a lot of time to educate yourself, figure out what you love. Apart from investment purposes, you know, watches are meant to be enjoyed. And I think now is a good time to really tap into that. And what time?
0: Ta- yeah, I was gonna say. What type of timepieces are you seeing collectors buying during the pandemic?
1: um You know, it ranges. I think those who are typically um, into collecting vintage timepieces um, have continued on that path. Um, I have clients that were only collecting modern that have now recently turned their interests into vintage. I have clients that are solely looking to adorn their homes because they're. Staring at their walls more than off more often, right. um, and and their interest is in the clocks. Let's say um, sometimes pocket watches. It's quite varied, but I think that the the main um, trend I'm seeing is a lot more um, gain in knowledge and a lot more interest in um, finding one's true passion. Hmm.
0: You know, there's a lot of luxury watch brands out there. Which ones hold their value the best, and why? Um,
1: yeah, I think it's not so much about what brand I mean there are top selling brands of course um right. you know, there are but I think more than the brand you really have to look at uh, certain factors to to hold value in a watch and those would be number one is condition you want to make sure that the watch is in um, original condition as much as possible that it hasn't had replaced parts that it, it would also come with its original paperwork perhaps if it's Let's say from the 1970s, you really want to have the original certificate, um, perhaps even the original sales receipt. Um, Those things can all add value. Um, I would also look at rarity, you know, how many were made, um, limited editions. Uh, There can be a lot of different limited editions. You want to be very careful with that that phrase um, and make sure that it is um, really something that can hold value. Um, So, there's a lot of different factors. I don't think you want to look at just one brand, but you want to look at the watch itself and um, and how it can hold value if you do want to resale in the future.
0: Yeah, it seems like Patek Philippe seems to be somewhat set apart from the rest of the industry and occupy this unique position. Do you think that's true and, and, and why?
1: Yeah, I mean, Panic is one of the oldest... Swiss luxury watch and clock manufacturers. Um, they founded in 1839. Their history is extremely rich. Um, they've provided watches to very prominent figures such as uh, Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, Mary Curie, John F. Kennedy, and the list goes on. Um, they also hold the title of the most expensive watch ever sold at auction. The Grandmaster Chime um, reference. 6,300 in steel, which which bought 31.19 million
0: wow.
1: US dollars in Geneva last year, and they also hold the most expensive pocket watch ever sold at auction, um, the Henry Graves super complication, which reached 23 uh, million uh, US dollars. So apart, but apart from all that, if you've ever really hold held a Patek Philippe in your hand, it's really easy to see. The craftsmanship um, is indeed set apart from the rest, you know, from the complexity of their movements to the intricate case designs. Um, it's pretty impressive. And um, I think you, if once, once you really get into the brand, you'll see why they sort of set themselves apart.
0: Let's talk about the, uh, the pre-owned luxury watch market. You know, like other sectors, the pre-owned luxury watch market seems to be growing rapidly. Is this trend spurred largely by younger shoppers focused on, you know, ecological concerns? Um, You know, you're seeing pre-owned retailers like Watchbox and Crodnext are gaining traction. Do you think that will have an impact on these traditional watch retailers?
1: Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Um, There are a growing number of pre-owned retailers which are easily found by young shoppers on the the internet. Um, The pre-owned market is growing. Um, Young collectors are seeing investment opportunities in pre owned over modern. You know, a luxury item which holds a history can hold as much value and often more than its modern counterpart. Like, for example, you can buy a $3,000 pre owned watch and it can hold a lot more value than the same price in its modern counterpart. So, traditional retailers are really going to have to adapt in order to keep up um, with, with all these new retailers and like any traditional business, um, cater to new demand as best as they can. But I think also for the consumer, it's important to mention that um, as there are more and more retailers, there's no doubt more and more questionable retailers. So it's very important to do your due diligence before purchasing.
0: And a luxury watch business is pretty dependent on the, you know, on Chinese demand, like many, many luxury brands. What are you seeing now in the market during and after the pandemic, the Chinese market?
1: Mm. Well, in the market now, we're seeing actually more of a well-balanced contribution in, in regard to the geographic location of our collectors. Um, just looking at the Geneva auction that, that we had a few weeks ago, um, the majority of bidders came from the USA. Um, right. But as mentioned before, collectors participate from all over the world, the USA and the Middle East, Asia and Europe.
0: You know, and for a segment that has been traditionally, you know, shown in terms of, you know, digital adoption, this recent influx of watchmakers on Chinese e- e- e-commerce marketplaces hints at a growing shift in perception, you know, but the luxury watch industry is unlike any other with a consumer journey that might not necessarily play out well as well online. Is the e-commerce really the next right channel for selling high-end timepieces in China?
1: Yeah I think no doubt it's I think a Christie's for sure is investing a huge amount in um, digital and technological capabilities. Um, virtual show, showrooms um, being able to view watches but without having the travel is um, very important for any market and um, it's only set to continue. We just have to, to um, a- adapt as quickly as possible. I think that's Really, uh, we don't want to rush it. We want to do it properly, right. but I, but I think um, catering to what's happening uh, as fast as possible is, is uh, definitely right. what
0: we're trying to do. So, what, what, what are some of the interesting lessons that you know you've learned, or Christie's has learned over the last four months that you will think may stick around in a post-COVID world, or some um, of the trends that that surfaced?
1: Yeah, I think what, when situations like a global crisis occur, you know, it's inevitable that people look for comfort in whatever they can. And I think luxury items can provide a certain level of comfort, whether for an investment purpose or simply indulging in things that you're passionate about. Um, with that said, it's no surprise that watches can hold sentimental value and history and can offer the wearer a connection with the past, which I think is more relevant than ever. Um, So history and provenance is very important, provenance being previous ownership and uh, who who owned this watch before you and, you know, what do they do with it? It's a big part of of buying nowadays. Um, As I've mentioned before, documentation, proof of purchase is important and quality and condition because clients are looking for watches that they can keep in their family and pass down to future generations. So a lot more thought goes into purchases these days and rightly so. Um, not only do you want, do you want to enjoy what you buy, but you want to get the best example of the product and perhaps want a potential return on investment later.
0: Right. How do you think social networks, you know, particularly Instagram have changed the world of watch collecting?
1: Oh, immensely. Um, watches, you know, there used to be whispers in the auction room and that would be, really, you know, years ago, the only way that you could sort of infiltrate the watch community. Um, But I think nowadays, everybody sort of wants a seat at the table. Um, And the best way to learn about watches and be involved is is to become immersed in the community. And I think social media has allowed that to happen on on a mass level, Um, which is great because everyone feels a bit more connected um, and and the best way, I think, the best watch collectors are those which um, talk to other watch collectors and 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 enjoy them together.
0: Yeah, actually, when we have actually connected on Instagram on your account, um, I started learning a lot about about watch collecting just from that. So yeah, um, I could see how it could play a large role in uh, in the business. Now, earlier this year, you know, data showed that Apple Watch is selling more watches than the entire Swiss watch industry. What are your thoughts on? Swiss Smart watches and its impact on the timepiece industry.
1: Um, on the one hand, smart watches and collectible vintage timepieces are two very different species. You know, one is an, in, in essence a computer, relying on the latest technology, and the other, let's say, vintage watches rely on expert craftsmanship from decades ago. Um, however, I can see that how the advance of the Apple Watch can spur an interest in traditional timekeepers. Um, I think an important commonality is that both Apple products and or smartwatch products um, with, with those and traditional watches is that usually the earliest and the rarest models can hold the most value. Um, in May last year in London, Christie sold the first Apple computer and right. it sold for 371
0: pounds. Yeah, remember that. Yeah, I remember
1: that. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? One day we might see the Apple watch in the same league. <laughs>
0: So, my final question, which I ask all my guests, is the, uh, the luxury item question. It's perhaps the most fun one of all the questions. Um, so, if you were stranded on a desert island, and uh, you can only have one luxury item, and what would that luxury item be? And it can't be any form of transportation or anything that requires mobile service. I have the sneaking suspicion I know what the answer is, but I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll wait to you. So um, what would that one luxury item be on this island all by yourself?
1: Uh, it's very difficult because working in my in my watch world, I really do love every watch. And it's very difficult for me to choose one. But my first thought is survival. So I would want a watch which mm-hmm. would help me in times of trouble. <laughs> and I would go towards... Rolex and steel because steel is quite durable and I would go with a Submariner. Um, While I am a lady and they're quite big for me, even the vintage ones, um, they're built as tool watches and I can tell you from personal experience that they could really take a good amount of wear. Um, (laughs) It's a dive watch so it's waterproof and so that could be useful if I ever attempt to catch a fish for dinner. (laughs) also it's automatic so it winds with the movement of your wrist instead of you having to manually wind it every morning which would under the circumstance be quite a chore and then I thought about the the crystal of the watch you know you could even angle it in such a way that it could catch the sun and perhaps alert passing ships so I really thought about that one and then my second thought went completely to my emotional stability. And I thought I'll retract all of that. And I'll just go for a Gerald Genta Mickey Mouse watch because like Tom Hanks and Wilson in Castaway, I'm probably just going to need a friend.
0: (laughs) I love that, such a great answer. And as far as telling time, if you go with the Mickey Mouse watch, you'll know it's at least right two times a day. There you go. Um, But uh, that was a great answer. Rebecca, thank you so much. Um, You know, I learned an awful lot about the watch industry. I know my listeners Learned a lot about it. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Scott.
0: That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.